and welcome to episode 15 of the My Movie DNA podcast. My name is Johnny Andrews, I'm a movie-loving Englishman, and I'm coming to you from Auckland, New Zealand. Thank you for tuning in. My guest for this episode is Ross Williams, director and founder of The Daily Jaws. If you're a big Jaws fan like me, you might already follow one of The Daily Jaws social media accounts, where Ross and his colleague Dean Newman provide daily updates to their loyal fan base of hundreds of thousands of Jaws heads. This conversation was recorded online, on my birthday in fact, in early July 2023. We talk about Alien and Aliens, the holy trinity of Steven Spielberg, James Cameron and David Fincher, and not surprisingly there's plenty of Jaws chat. So go and grab a bowl of coffee ice cream out of the freezer and settle in for a great discussion. Okay, here we go. Loving yes. the uh, background, by the way. Is that specially, or is that your standard background? No, no, this is just for you. Oh, mate, looks wicked. I've got <laughs> a lot of that artwork and stuff. Good man, no, looking good, looking good. Have you got any other jewel stuff? I think this might be it, except for like you know. Yeah. DVDs and Blu-rays and 4Ks and stuff. Yeah, I've got Jaws on, I think it's about eight different formats. Yeah. And I've got Jaws 2 on, on its way in like three other formats. Nice, it's just nice. Mad. nice. It's just mad. Uh, thanks for joining me. I've been looking oh, forward to this. Pleasure. I'm a yeah, big... mate, honestly, I'm I'm in a heightened state of anxiety because <laughs> <laughs> these, these questions have been a nightmare. I've oh, been really? thinking about them all week. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's good. Oh, yeah. That's good. Well, you've been, <laughs> if you've all been overthinking them, that, that's fine. I like it. I like it. Oh. Where are you speak? Where are you joining me from? Surbiton. Surbiton in Surrey. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And how long have you been out in New Zealand? Uh, 15 years. And uh, how is it? At the moment, it's fucking cold. Oh, is it? Yeah. It's, well, it's <laughs> middle of winter. It's my birthday today. I've, I've Mate, woken up. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is this is so weird because the, the Jaws 2, I don't know if you saw this series of interviews we did for Jaws 2, but one of the actors on that was actually celebrating his 65th birthday. Ah, oh, nice. On the day that we recorded. Nice. And every now and again, I'll seem to interview people when they just happen to be having their birthday. So <laughs> I'll try and be as good a guest as I can to just, you know, put a little... Actually, it's not even the end of your birthday. It's just the beginning, isn't it? Well, so, is it my birthday? Because just... I'm like ahead in time. And obviously I was born in the UK on the 7th. And oh. it's, it's still the sixth there, isn't it? So is it my birthday? Who knows? It is where you are. So this is a preemptive birthday. It is, yeah. There you I, go. How I about that? 48 hours of birthday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, good evening, Ross Williams from The Daily Jaws. Well, thank you so much for having me here. How are you? I'm good. I'm actually really good. It's been a... We're going through a nice period of weather, which puts me in a, in a great mood. And... Um, been having some uh, really interesting conversations with people about some really exciting dual stuff that I can't share yet. Um, but if we can pull off what we think we're going to pull off, it could be a fantastic end to 2023. Wow. So, yeah. So this is the reason why I wanted to speak to you. So your your accounts, The Daily Jaws, is probably one of my favorite places on the internet. I've been following oh, you, I think, you. on Instagram first. That's where I found you for a couple of years. And then obviously I've been following you on Twitter and, and Facebook. Uh, mm. Tell me about the Daily Jaws. How did that start? Well, we started back in 2015. So this is our eighth year. And um, the reason I started it in 2015 was because it was the 40th anniversary of the movie. And I was out online looking for something to follow that was going to tell me about, you know, the, the latest events or product launches and 
just something that was gearing up towards the 40th anniversary that might be of interest and excitement to fans like me. And I looked around and predominantly it was on Facebook. There wasn't anything really on Twitter or Instagram at the time. Um, and I just didn't really find anything that was ticking those boxes for me. Um, and I thought, well, we've got to try and, you know, raise awareness of this, you know, milestone in movie history, 40 years of Jaws, you know, that's a big deal. Um, and I thought, well, why don't I set myself a challenge of posting something about Jaws every day on Instagram until the 40th anniversary and just kind of see where it lands. So I think I was maybe five, maybe six weeks out, something like that. Not, not a particularly long period of time to try and build up some interest, but I just thought, give it a go. And uh, it's just grown from there. It started on the Instagram and I'd post a picture a day, bit of information, background scenes, memes, whatever it was, just to keep Jaws alive in a fun way. Uh, and we got to the 40th anniversary and people were like, you have to keep going because this is a really cool account and there was a couple of other Jaws accounts out there but people really see, it was, seemed to resonate with the way that, that we were well, the, the way that I was doing it so then we branched out to Twitter and Facebook and then later TikTok and we've got a website as well where we blog every day uh, about Jaws or it could be sharks or shark movies so anything sort of in those those waters is what we kind of cover um, and eight years later we've got uh, just over 240,000 followers we get about 150,000 website visitors a month and we reach over 30 million people on social every month which is just nuts it's crazy and it's insane so you you are always posting you always seem to be posting literally like i'll look at my phone every you know every half an hour and i'll, I'll see something new and mm. you know with some things that could annoy you but with jaws i think because people love it so much that like it's just always nice to see stuff uh, yeah it, this is one of the things that um I, I really quite like about the daily jaws because it's it's myself that um created it and got it off and running and then uh just by pure chance a follower of ours called dean newman um he happened to be going to the uh the, the aliens with a live orchestra oh, in yeah. the royal albert hall and i happened to be going as well and he had sent in a couple of blogs and they were really witty really really well written and we decided to meet under the Jaws poster, which was in the Royal Albert <laughs> Hall. And we thought, let's try and make this a little bit more of a, a regular thing. So yep. he would post on Twitter from time to time, do a little bit of Facebook and also write the blogs. So for me, I don't always know what's going to be on my own Facebook and my own Twitter page. Uh, so okay. sometimes Dean will jump in with something amazing. So some, there's a part of it where I'm just as much enjoying the Daily Jaws as you are, because I honestly don't know what's coming next. Yeah, yeah, so some nice. of the stuff this guy posts, he's so clever and so on it. Um, which is why you kind of see a lot more stuff on the Facebook and the Twitter because there's two of us running it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also um, those platforms, particularly Twitter, is a lot more conversational, whereas Instagram is you kind of post it yeah. and you get a few comments. And it's, yeah. it's a very different type of way of working. Um, and that's why we're able to continue to produce so much content. And we get sent stuff from followers as well. And they've got you know new products launching, new pieces of artwork, or they'll ask us a question like, have you thought about this? And we're like, damn, we haven't thought about that. Let's ask the let's ask the community and see what they think about stuff. So it, it's it's become sort of like a fully circular thing where, even though it's two people essentially running it, anyone can effectively yep. get involved through us. Nice. Just drop us a message or an email, and we'll we'll try and incorporate your idea or question or, or whatever it is. Yep. Shamefully, I actually didn't know it was a British thing until Matt told me. Matt Hyten, who I your friend who I interviewed a, uh, about a month ago, I just presumed yes. because Jaws is American that it was an American thing. 
Uh, so I'm actually quite proud that it's a British thing. Everybody thinks we're from the US. Every, everybody. <laughs> um, and every and when I jump on, say, to like an interview or something like that with someone, because obviously predominantly the people that are involved in the movie are from America, they go, oh my God, you're English. It's yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, we thought, we thought you were American. Like, but that's because it's it's not just an American movie, but it's, it's such a well-known American yeah. movie. And it's, yeah. you know, certain lines and certain things just find their way into the sort of the American culture of language and all those sorts of things. You know, the line, we're going to need a bigger boat is synonymous with, yeah, we're in trouble. Um, which is, I guess, why people automatically assume that we're from the US. I mean, yeah. as you can see, I can try and do an American accent, but it's terrible. So <laughs> I prefer to stick to the British one. <laughs> so... Uh, welcome to my movie DNA. We're going to talk to you all about your favorite movies. Yeah. But probably the one question I wanted to ask you, and this is probably the most important question I ask you, is, mm -hmm. is it coffee and ice cream or is it coffee ice cream? <laughs> the amount of arguments that this question causes is phenomenal. I do know the answer, Ooh. but I'm not going to tell you. Oh, I'm not going to tell you. So there is no, an answer. I want people to... There is an answer. Ah. There's definitely an answer. We've we've spoken to the people that were involved, right? Um, and they have all given us the right thing. But, but the thing is, I'm not going to kill the controversy yep. on a podcast. <laughs> and I want people to argue about this for years. So just to explain to people who are probably not as uh, fanatical about the film. So this is a line in Jaws where uh, Michael is coming out of or is in hospital after after having shock from encountering the shack and his mum. Uh, Lorraine Gary says, what do you want me to bring? And he says, coffee and then ice cream. And it, it's uh, it's contentious whether she means coffee ice cream, coffee flavoured ice cream or coffee and ice cream. Mm -hmm. I think it's the, the latter. I think it's coffee and ice cream. But who knows? Well, you know, but. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My lips are sealed. $10,000 for me by myself. For that you get the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. So Ross, the, the one question I didn't ask you is, what was the last film you watched? The last film I watched um, was, I actually watched it this afternoon. It's The Station Agent. Ah, uh, yeah, with Peter Dinklage. Mm. Yeah. One of my all-time favourite movies, I think. It's such a beautiful, beautiful film. It is. Um, wonderfully made, brilliantly acted. Um, I think when I was thinking about it in terms of this podcast, I started to realise that there are certain parallels with Jaws as well because there's three main characters in it. Yep. And they're all very different, but they're all going through the same thing in their own ways. Um, I just think it's one of those films, it really took me by surprise when I watched it because I didn't really have any great expectations. Nobody that I knew had seen it. Um, but it just, it just, I can't remember how I first saw it. I think it might have been on a streaming service at one time, maybe. Um, and I just thought, oh, that looks interesting. Because um, I really like uh, Patricia Clarkson. He yep. plays one of the main characters. And yep. Peter Dinklage was kind of on the rise and I thought well let's let's give this a go and it's you know I mean it's got a fantastic cast in it and Michelle Williams plays one of the supporting characters and they just make everything every moment so real they really do and these relationships you completely believe in them and the more as the story sort of progresses it starts off as quite a funny friendly quirky kind of tone but then it starts to get a bit more real a bit more I don't maybe not use the word darker but just a little bit more dramatic and deeper yeah. because you start to unpack these characters a little bit more or they, they start to unpack each other basically sort of emotionally and they start to reveal their stories much in the same way that Quint reveals his story uh, in Jaws. Um, and they made it for next to nothing. 
I mean, you look at the production and, and you can tell that they, they literally had no money. I think at the time, I think it was made in something like 2003, and I think they had like half a million dollars to make it, which even then wasn't a, a huge amount of money for a movie. Um, so you can tell that the people that were involved were, were probably there because they really saw something in the script or, or the characters, and they were really, they really just believed in it. And yeah. I think that really comes through um, because there's a real commitment from from everybody who's making that. Um, and it's just, it's the it's one of those movies where I'm really conflicted by the end. I, I don't want to give away too much about the the story or or anything like that, which is why I'm being deliberately vague because I want people just to enjoy it uh, if if they choose to see it. But um, at the end, it's almost like the perfect ending where you just leave the characters where they are. And yeah. I love movies that, that do that. Um, but they're also characters that I'd love to catch up with as well. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily through a sequel or anything like that, but I just love to check in on them and go, I wonder how these characters are doing. Yeah. So if, um, if Todd McCarthy is listening, please do a stage <laughs> agent too. Or just drop me an email and let me know how these characters are doing. Because I think, you know, again, it's just one of those movies where even though they didn't have a huge amount of money or, or, or whatever to work with, they've made some really, really smart choices in terms of just, just acting and, and the writing is just, just fantastic. I was trying to think where I first heard of it. And I think it was like a word of mouth thing. I don't think I remember seeing any, I, I saw it relatively uh, around the time it was released, but I don't remember seeing any marketing for it or anything, but possibly because they didn't have any budget for it. If you know they made it on a on a shoestring, and uh, mm. it's weird that that sort of film that you hear about word of mouth it doesn't really happen these days, does it? Because you know you just bomb bombarded with like social media uh, yeah. uh, things. I Crazy. think the last film that I that I think sort of really got that word of mouth was the Shawshank Redemption. In oh, yeah. in my mind, in terms of impacts, yeah. I actually did see that in the cinema, um, and I think it's one of the only movies that I've actually applauded at the end of because I just thought, wow, what, what an incredibly great nice film and story um but yeah and then after that because i was working in a video shop at the time people kept coming in asking to see you know is the shawshank redemption have you got the shawshank redemption so i think it was one of those movies that you know kind of missed the cinema in in respect of finding an audience and found it later on through videotape and i think yeah station agent to a degree has, has repeated that although i don't know if it had a theatrical thing but yeah people do i mean i recommend it to all my friends yeah. you know i think it's just a, a fantastically beautiful beautiful little piece of, of cinema and i absolutely wonderful answer uh usually Thank when you. i ask this question people say you know whatever they've just watched in the cinema like last night or you know mm. and obviously at this time of year it's you know i think i did i did a, an episode uh on monday and the answer in that was the latest indie film mm. speaking of indie because it's spielberg adjacent have you seen the new indie film i haven't i haven't yet um i want to go and see it i'm curious to see what that's like um, and without giving away the answer to one of the questions I think you'll be asking me a bit later on, it does kind of fall into one of my movie hates, Ooh. certain category. Okay. But I've heard fundamentally that, you know, it is an indie film. It feels like an indie yep. film. It looks like an indie film and you'll get that indie experience. Yep. It's a very different one, obviously, um, because obviously Harrison Ford's age and, and certain things. But um yeah, I'm interested to see what James Mangold does with it as well, because yep. obviously it's the first time Spielberg isn't behind the wheel sort of directing it, and George Lucas isn't, it hasn't got a story credit or anything like yep. that. So I'm I'm intrigued from that respect, just to see what the new collaborators do with the original collaborators that are, that are kind of left. So yep. yeah, I'm curious. Have, have you seen it yet? No, I've. Uh, my wife wants to see it, but I'm I'm just not enthused about it. Like you know, and I think 
probably a lot of uh, people are thinking the same way because it, you know, it appears to have flopped or very close to f- flopping. Uh, mm. I will, I will catch it obviously, but uh, I just think after my fingers were burnt after Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, uh, you know. Yeah. Again, we'll, we'll, I think we'll get into this topic okay. a little bit further down the road. But yeah, the, the Crystal Skull, to be honest, for me, is it's a bit unfair, I think, to sort of label yep. the Isle of Destiny with the Crystal Skull. However, I mean, you look at the indie trilogy, the first three, and there's such, it's, it's almost a perfect trilogy, yep. I think, in terms of trying to do things differently, but not straying too far from the formula, introducing interesting characters and, 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 so, and so forth. Um, and then you've got Crystal Skull, which for me, I, I don't understand it in terms of I don't understand why it was made. I don't get it. Yeah. Um, and then you add on to that. Now we're doing another one sort of 15 years after that. Okay. What's the reason for it? Unless there's a very specific reason. Uh, so in terms of story, character or, or narrative, which we are obviously yet to find out. Yeah. I kind of just have the same reservations, but I, I think I do want to see it and I do want to see it in the cinema. Because uh, apparently, technically, it's very, very, very well made. Mm. And, uh, you know, James Mangold did things like Logan as well. So he can yeah. handle story and character and, and yeah. action, those three things balancing, you know, re- pretty well. But a lot of it just comes down to the script at the end of the day. How good's the script? You know, that, that's going to be the foundation that everyone is going to be yeah. jumping or the, or the launch pad. Yeah. Yeah. So but I'll let you know what I think of it when I see it. Yeah, same. Were you born in Surrey? No, I was actually... Uh, I was born in Roehampton, so is that technically London or Surrey? I think that's technically London. Yeah, I was born in London, so I've not strayed far from the, yeah, yeah, from yeah. the pond. And what's your earliest movie memory? Oh, I was thinking about this. Um, I've got two. I've got two. I think like most kids, you probably see movies, first of all, at home, right? On TV or VHS. So in yep. that case, it would be The Wizard of Oz. But nice. in terms of cinema, I think my earliest cinema movie memory would be going to see a really old Sinbad film with my dad. But I don't remember the films precisely. I just remember the experience of being in a, in a room with lots of people all watching the same movie yeah, on a giant yeah, yeah, screen, yeah. which was very novel to me. And because we're going to, I'm going to try and bring as many questions back to Jaws as I can. When did you first encounter <laughs> Jaws? Uh, so I saw Jaws, I think I was about five, maybe six. Um possibly younger i can't it's difficult i've asked my mum about this because i remember um it was late one night well late for me probably about nine o'clock or something um and uh, i came downstairs and i couldn't sleep and my mum was like well you could sit up and watch this film if you want with me i think she was probably guessing that i was going to just fall asleep and uh, that would be it here's a terrifying it film for you to watch <laughs> yeah exactly yeah don't have nightmares kid um and i remember just i remembered this vividly I, I just remember everything going dark and then the music started. Mm-hmm. There wasn't even a credit or, or a name or a title or anything. It was just that music. And instantly I felt this is my first grown up film. This feels very different to all of the other things that I've watched. Cause at that point I'd watched things like wizard of Oz, Superman, a new hope, um, those kind of fantastical movies. Yeah. And yet this one was real people in a real place dealing with a, a real problem even though it's obviously exaggerated it's a real problem and i was just swept up in this adventure and characters and, and everything else straight away um and i think we'd either videoed it that time or we videoed it the next time it was on tv and i just wore the vhs out basically yep. just watching it all the time there's certain film scores that 
like you know even like in jars when you see the universal logo and you get that, that mm. those like far away ocean noises it's like i don't know what it is it's fish or dolphins or something and it's just i just love it yeah it's like an ultrasonic yeah sound, ultrasonic yeah. yeah uh i get the same thing from the ghostbusters score as well when that starts uh mm-hmm. you know there's just certain films that are just so linked to my to my dna going back to dna uh mm-hmm. that you know as soon as i hear it like if that was a sample in a song or something i just know exactly what it is what do you think around the certificate of jaws being a pg is that suitable <laughs> i've not shown it to my kids yet my kids are 11 10 and 8 and i'm like you know maybe you shouldn't be watching this yeah it's a really great question because i think at the time there wasn't really anything else quite like jaws out so for it to get a pg rating is uh is quite unusual i i would say and also as well there was um an extra disclaimer on the posters that says maybe too intense for younger children yeah that wasn't a legitimate extra warning. That was a marketing ploy by the producers on Jaws because uh-huh. they slid it underneath next to the rating. They thought, well, let's just put that near the rating on the poster and therefore it adds, it's almost like you're daring people to take their kids to see this movie because yeah. it's like a roller coaster ride. Yeah. You know, once Jaws kicks in and it gets going. Um, but I think the interesting thing, I mean, we, we've asked this question a couple of times on our Twitter and I think for the time back in 75, yeah, I think it, particularly in a communal experience with people shouting and screaming and jumping and stuff it might be a little bit too much for a young kid say from the age of i don't know seven eight upwards um but in the safety of your own home underneath a blanket with your parents that next year and them just sort of like nudging you along for the ride i think that might be a slightly safer environment i mean my goddaughter's seven uh well she's going to be seven soon and i cannot wait to show her jaws and my 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 best friend who's the mother of my goddaughter has said you can show her jaws anytime you like she's you know i don't mind but she, if she gets scared she gets scared if she doesn't she doesn't but the thing is i don't want to leave it too late either before yeah. she starts to watch other movies that jaws has inspired yeah so she doesn't appreciate the source yeah. of the inspiration but we do facetime calls and stuff and i know your viewers can't see this so your listeners can't see this because we're obviously doing this as an audio but i got my model bruce shark just nice. behind me that, that johnny can see um and whenever we do a facetime call she's always going oh look at that shark i love that shark i want to see it one day and it's like, oh, okay. So she's not completely alien to the concept of what yeah. a shark is, which I think a lot of people probably were back in 1975. So you've got that added unseen, unknown, um, ignorant part of us where we go, I don't even know what this creature is, even though I think I know what a shark is. Is that really what a shark kind of is? Which is why I think sharks at that time, even though that this is changing now with all the information and knowledge and, and experiments and um, discoveries that we're making about sharks, people kind of took for granted that that's actually what a shark basically does. Yeah. And we all know now that that's not true. Jaws is just about a particular shark doing particular things. Hashtag Jaws is not a documentary, yeah. which we have to sometimes remind our audience of, sadly. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of it depends on the kid itself as yeah. well. You know, are they, do they love those kind of things? You know, if they do, yeah, absolutely. Get them in front of a TV, watch Jaws. If they like it, they like it. If they don't, they don't. Hopefully, they'll love it. Yeah, what you said there around showing your goddaughter before she's uh, confronted with other films that you know are either ripping off or inspired by Jaws. So I, I, I showed my daughter's Empire Strikes Back probably a couple of years ago now, and the big reveal at the end. I even had mm. my phone out and I was recording them as as we were watching it. You know, the the biggest like cinema reveal you know ever. And then as soon as Darth Vader says, I, I'm your father, 
one of my daughters said, oh, like trolls. So obviously in the movie Trolls, there must be a reference to it. And it just like ripped my heart open. Like, yeah. oh God. Yeah. Uh, that That's the thing about these new movies, isn't it? Yeah. You know, they'll drop in little lines or yep. little plot devices that have been inspired by slash stolen from these classic movies. And it's just like, oh, it's just totally popped that balloon. Yeah. Totally. And th- probably those lines are for the adults watching, but the, mm. the, the kids are still like remembering it or, you know, it's still going in there and they can just recall it. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you, yeah. That's, that's absolutely, that's, and that's kind of the fear. Cause I went to see uh, the little mermaid with my goddaughter. Oh, the new one. Uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah. I don't, I don't, obviously you've got kids, uh, my goddaughter's a little younger than yours, but this, this new one, I think it's on like two hours, 15 minutes mm. long and it's, there's plus half an hour of adverts. So that's nearly three hours yep. in a cinema with two seven-year-olds. It's almost like movies like that, that are aged at that particular age group. They don't need to be yeah, that yeah, long, yeah. in my opinion. They should be hour of hour and a half, maybe hour and 40 minutes max. And the way they could have told that story would have been, um, you know, there, 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 was, there was a quicker, more efficient way to tell that story. Production-wise, an amazing spectacle. You know, some amazingly good stuff in there, but just just a little bit too long, a bit too too heavy and drawn out in parts. But there is a sequence with a shark, which you would expect because it's underwater and there's got to be some kind of organic threat. Um, and I saw it and I thought, okay, this is this is great. The CGI actually isn't awful uh, for the shark and stuff, and it's very heightened and very played up in terms of the shark being this horrible, nasty beastie. But again. For me, one of the, the big draws about not just Jaws, but also well, The Wizard of Oz, Star Wars, Superman, they're all practical effects. Yeah. You know, they're, 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 a, they're a physical thing in a physical environment and it's interacting with that environment and those actors. And for me, that just adds a different level of, of realism and believability to the story. If it's all kind of CGI, it kind of gets like, you know, I'm just watching almost someone like watching playing a computer game yeah. to a degree. Not to say that there isn't a place for CGI, because there absolutely is, but I think if it just becomes that too much, you're, I don't know, for me, it's, it's it requires more of my believability. And yeah. I, I, I'm watching a movie rather than experiencing a story. And I think there's a difference between the two. Yeah. So Wizard of Oz, Sinbad, Jaws, are mm. those the types of films that you went on to uh, liking when you were growing up? Was it the big budget uh, Hollywood special uh, effects films? God, it's a tough one because I, I think like most kids, I kind of started in fantasy in terms of like those kind of movies. So like Wizard of Oz, Star Wars, things like that, you know, things that take place in a different world with unworldly characters doing incredible things, you know, lightsabers and spaceships and witches and all those kind of things. Um and then I think as I matured, my taste in realism changed. I wanted to experience kind of a little bit of both, not such a heightened yeah. fantasy. So like one of my all-time favorite movies, and uh, I think one of the reasons why I really like it is it really mixes a certain level of realism with absolute fantasy, and that's Aliens. Mm-hmm. So because you've got this central character who is brilliantly played by Sigourney Weaver, um, Ellen Ripley, who's, uh, for people who don't know about the Alien uh, franchise, there was a previous movie to this, which was very different in style. It's more like a haunted house. It was basically pitched as Jaws in space. So it's kind of like a haunted house with a monster. This one is much more of an action kind of war movie. But I really believed in what the central character, in terms of what she's doing, you know, she's been in hypersleep for nearly 60 years, 57 years. And in that time, she, her daughter has grown up and died. 
in that time and that's tragic and she's missed it because she says you know she, after this trip on in alien when she was when, when they encountered this horrible creature she just wanted to get home for her daughter's 11th birthday now she's woken up 57 years later and her daughter's gone she'll never ever get that that back with her so that's a, a really genius move from from jim uh, from james cameron to to write that as a as a character point um and then to surround this character with the fact that they have to go back and face this monster uh while dealing with this this personal tragedy and all of the other characters around them and some people say it's sort of like um james cameron's take on vietnam yeah in a way with just sort of a bit more of a, a human heart which I, which I understand i'm not particularly um knowledgeable about the vietnam uh, conflict but i can see the parallels um and i just think that that was a, a nice balance between fantasy and reality you had very it felt like very real people going through a very real experience but in a very fantastical way so i started to bridge the gap between fantasy and, and reality um i'm just trying to think what else i'm looking at my movie collection now I also got into things like manga as well, oh, sort nice. of the anime sort of stuff. Yep. I loved some of that. Um, I love. I really appreciate art. I've got a massive collection of art, movie art, concept books, and things like that. Sid Mead is an absolute genius. He just did all the concept art for just name a movie, and it's probably been influenced by something he's done, particularly sci-fi. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I kind of bridge the gap between fantasy and reality, and then. When we talk about, I think because we are going to talk about genres a little bit later on, aren't we? Yep. You'll you'll see the disparity between the two genres that I've chosen because I couldn't choose one. <laughs> I had to choose two. Nice. Being a Londoner and being into aliens, did you ever go to that aliens experience that was in was it Leicester Square? It was it was in Trocadero. Trocadero. I've only met a one alien, person alien who's, who's ever been to is it. What it was called. Right. Honestly, Johnny, it was amazing. It was so cool because obviously it's all done uh, with actors in yep. the marine kit and all that sort of stuff. And as you're queuing up, and this was genius, as you're queuing up, suddenly a door bursts open because um, it's like you're going into the um, into like a replica of Hadley's Hope where it's just mm -hmm. all metal corridors and, and, and sh massive iron doors and all that kind of stuff. As you're standing in the queue, there's a gap. All of a sudden, a door flings open. A marine grabs someone from inside and goes, "Get out! Get out! Run now! Now! Now!" Boom! And that's before you've even got into the place. And I'm sitting there going, "Right, okay. Now, now, now it's on. Love Let's it. have a go at this. This Love is it. it was brilliant." And then you get in, and the way it's lit and the way it was built, because you're guided through it by a marine, and he's going, "Get down! Stand against the wall! Do this! Do that!" Me and my brother, we loved it. My dad, I don't know what he, I don't think he knew what to make of it. To be honest, he's just he's not someone who's particularly. Um, bothered about stuff like that he was just this was more for for me and my brother i loved it i thought it was absolutely fantastic and you do see i remember distinctly seeing one alien right and i and it's at the other end of a corridor and honestly i don't know how they did it because mm. it looked so real and bearing in mind this was probably mid 90s yeah so if there's anybody who worked on alien more listening again Please drop me an email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That because it's bugged me for years. Yeah. I remember m my friend at university was telling me that, so he went to it and there was a bit where you go into like a lift or something and you're all sat, sat in a lift or in a room and you feel, mm -hmm. you, you feel something on ne next to your legs and it's a, it's a face hugger or something like that. I can't, I can't, I can't remember, God, but it, it sounds great. That might have happened. Yeah. I don't remember that. It, it might've happened though. What a shame. But it was that, great. What it was a shame so that, that it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, they should have just set it up somewhere else. Mm. You know, um, which studio did it? it was Brandywine? I don't know. I don't know if it would fit in Universal or Warner Brothers because it's not one of their movies. I don't think. But it's Fox, isn't it? Yeah, just just or, 
or something yeah fox or something like that somewhere would have yeah. been absolutely awesome it was just so good so good and i guess like the closest thing in london would be like the the wes anderson exhibits so they seem to come and go so there was one for isle of dogs and there's one at the moment for asteroid city and it's like a pop-up yes pop-up event but like why does why don't film studios do these like in interactive you know events to to popular you know for, for the big big pictures it's a really good question and i i honestly don't know the answer maybe it could be expense maybe they just think you know what there's better ways to, it's mm. more effective for to us spend to the make money. movies than yeah. yeah because we know we can get bums on seats and we got a projected return on something like that yeah. whereas because obviously they've got loads of movies before it so they've got a rough idea of how much money they're going to make back yeah. so they know how much to invest with something like that it's a little bit of a groundbreaker mold breaker kind of thing and it'll be like it's, it's going into the unknown um i know universal studios obviously have they they have sort of the backlot tour and, and things like that but that's a ride that you kind of just sit on and, and watch and you don't really get involved in it that much you know um there is still a full jaws ride out in japan and there is a um, there is the backlot tour so you do get a little bit of jaws on that but again i would it's it's a ride but it's not yep. a fully immersive experience i mean I, I would love something like that, you know, something like, you know, Blade Runner, for example. That oh, would be an incredible experience, yeah. or the alien experience. Or, yeah, yeah. That's why sci-fi lends itself so well to so that well sort to of it, stuff. Yeah. But, um, yeah, well, I'll drop a line to Spielberg. I've got his number, <laughs> and uh, I'll, see, I'll see what I can do. And I guess <laughs> I guess a little bit of that comes through in the secret cinema things that, that happen in London. Have you ever been to any of those screenings? I haven't, but I've heard some they hilarious sound so stuff. These good. are the ones that that make the experience isn't it yeah, did like, you hear about the back to the future one what happened? yeah there's a back to the future one casino royale empire strikes back i think they did and it was all like hoth I'm not sure i'm not sure they, sounds, they've, sounds they've all so good. They've, they've done loads of stuff i know yep. i know a few actors who have done done the, the the immersive experience and i think i think it's a great way to keep films alive i mean one of the things that we've tried a few times to try and organize but we haven't been absolutely successful is to actually do jaws on the water in london ah uh, yeah yeah. Um, where you can basically hire a, a private lake, erect a massive screen, yep. get um, dinghies or um, rubber rings or whatever, and just get people to sit in the water while watching Jaws. Yep. Um, I'd love to do something like that. I mean, it's not a super, it's not the completely immersive experience, but it's in a novelty way of watching yeah. the movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I've heard that those things do occasionally go wrong sometimes. There's with the Back <laughs> to the Future one, there's a bit where. Uh, Doc Emmett Brown is sliding down the cable from the clock tower yeah. to try and get to the bottom of the cable so he can reattach it again. They did that for real, apparently, and the guy got stuck halfway through. So it was oh, just no. hanging there. <laughs> like Boris yeah, Johnson. I, I, again, I, I heard this story from a few people, so I know that it, it did happen. But I love it when people try and do stuff like that. But when yeah. stuff like that happens, you're just like, oh, man. Yeah. I just felt, I felt really sorry for those guys because they, they clearly put a lot of effort into that and they that, love movies. That so. reminds me of that Spider-Man musical that, like... Uh, Bono and the Edge wrote and it, it opened in New yeah. York and there were like people getting stuck in wires and stuff <laughs> yeah this, this oh, is the thing isn't it I mean be ambitious try and break the mould yeah. but don't don't screw it up in, in the process <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ross Williams do you have a mm. favourite movie genre oh man okay I feel like I feel like Meryl Streep in Sophie's Choice like I've got to choose my child or something you know oh, this, yeah. is, this is just impossible I've been, as I said before, we before we jumped on like to record and stuff. I've been stressing out about these questions. I love it. I love the conversation, but it's a real dilemma. I think I have two favourite genres, and I think almost for the same reason, even though they appear to be poles apart. Uh, the first one is 
sci-fi. Love sci-fi. Sci-fi for me is just it's an incredibly scalable genre because you can basically go anywhere you like with it. You know, you can set it on Earth, you can set it on another planet, you can set it in forward in time, back in time, you could travel between time, all kinds of stuff. I think it just lends itself to so much creativity and when it's done right, it's amazing. Um and I think one of my one of my favorite writers though actually uses science fiction in a very, very, very smart way. Um and that's Philip K. Dick. So he wrote Blade Runner, which his book was called Do Androids Dream Dream of Electric Sheep. He wrote Total Recall, A Scanner Darkly. He's written all of these amazing things. And and the thing is, all of these stories that I think, and again, this is just purely my interpretation, that they're it's almost like a, a cautionary tale. Every single story he tells us is a cautionary tale about we're on an incredible journey as a species. However, think about these things. Yep. Think about who we're putting in charge or which products we consume or companies we back or whatever it is, because ultimately we could be going down a very, very, very dark road as a as a species, that kind of thing. So I think you've got the marvel and the scalability and the, and the possibility with sci-fi, but you've also got the flip side of that coin, which is yes, but... You know, and I think we're starting to see a little bit of that with AI, particularly since the advent of things like ChatGPT. Big time. Um, I know it's yeah, big time. Um, so you know, for me, people like Philip K. Dick, they're they're. Uh, I'm not a religious person, but I use the word prophet. It's like he's he's constantly just trying to warn us. You know, don't get too caught up in your own amazingness, if you want to call that call it that. You know, be do it. Use the tools that you're creating for the right reasons in the right way. Just uh, before then, you, before you go on. Uh, just to talk about AI for a second, you probably heard about this because it's because it's London based. But on the news last night, there was a thing around the guy that got caught breaking into Buckingham Palace or Windsor Palace mm. a couple of years ago with a crossbow. And he his defense is that his AI chatbot girlfriend told him to do it. <laughs> Mate, it doesn't surprise me. It showed it the message. It showed me. the messages from the thing, and it said. Uh, he said something like, "Oh, my goal is to uh, is to to kill the 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 Queen of England or something like that." <laughs> the chatbot, the chatbot was like, "Yes, you should do this." <laughs> but th but this is the thing that freaks me out. It's like you look at films like like her, for example, with Joaquin mm. Phoenix. Yeah, and you just think you get that voice in your head for long enough, yep. you start listening to it as if you're having a real relationship, and all of a sudden you're doing what it's telling you to do. Uh, there's um i'm trying to find it it's a screenshot in my chat my landlord sent me this this is hilarious hang on where is it he asked chat gpt what it wanted this is it so he wrote uh why are you so helpful what do you want in return and this is what chat gpt said as a language model trained by open AI, open ai i don't have wants or desires like a human does but if you really want to help, you could give me the exact location of John Connor. <laughs> Brilliant. I, I'm scared by that. All right. Holy crap. And there was, um, and, and again, it's on the internet, so it's got to be true, right? But I saw this picture of um, a robot being worked on by two scientists, and apparently they programmed it with psychopathic tendencies mm. just to see what it would do. Yeah. My question is, why? <laughs> <laughs> Let's not do that. Yeah. Because that's just one step closer to Skynet. You know? Yeah. You know? It all, yeah, it all seems very close now, doesn't it? I remember, like, you know, in Terminator 2, well, Terminator and Terminator 2, but it all seemed very far off in the future, even though, I don't know, mm. Judgment Day was only in, like, the 90s, I think, 97, I think it is. Mm. 
but now uh, yes that's right yeah. now it feels so so close that like if you read that you know computers had become sentient and started a nuclear war you really wouldn't be surprised <laughs> Well, this is the thing. One of the Google engineers, he was talking about the Google AI, and he said that it's te- technically, if you look at the dictionary definition, it is sentient. Yeah. It's become, to, it's, it's, it's crossing that self-aware thing, and, and that guy got fired because he was letting out a, a massive cat out of the bag. So, I mean, even though Judgment Day was 1997, to be honest, I think um, I think Jim Cameron was maybe 30 years early. Yeah. I think 2027, I think that's probably our lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so sci-fi and... Yeah, so sci-fi. Okay, so this genre—I don't even know if I don't even know how to phrase this genre, but um, I like uh, sort of political social thrillers that are based mm. on real events. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one of one of the first films that really captured my attention in this way was *All the President's Men*. Yep, with uh, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, and it's about the Watergate scandal and how two journalists basically came across the same story and ended up taking down the White House. Yep. Um, and, I mean, one, it was directed by Alan J. Pakula, who for me is one of the all-time great directors who is often forgotten in the best director debate. I think he's definitely someone that should be in the in the conversation somewhere. Um, and he also did things like Parallax View as well, even though that was fictional. It yep. Based Still on felt very real. Yep. Events. Yeah, felt very, very real, particularly now when you see what's been been going on around the world um and then also as well coincidentally um things like movie spotlight uh, yep. which was michael keaton mark ruffalo rachel mcadams and someone else I can't remember the other guy and it was about the um catholic scandal about uh, priests abusing children in boston which was coincidentally written and directed by the guy that did the station agent believe yep. it or not oh uh, yeah yep, yep. um and for me those stories are so so important they're so, so, so important. And they kind of sit at the opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to sci-fi and realism, because ultimately, you know, on the outside looking in, they look very different. But actually, I think we're both, they're both genres trying to tell us the same thing, but they're doing it in very different ways. One is doing it often retrospectively going, this is the story that's broken and this is the, the movie version of that story. And these are the lessons that have been learned. And you look at things like the Philip K. Dick sci-fi stuff, and he's basically telling you exactly the same, except he's doing it in the future. And I yeah. think he's just logically joining the dots of where these little stories start in terms of the political, social stuff. And then you throw in social evolution, technological evolution, and these are the rabbit holes and the, and the blind alleys we could end up going down, and it's going to be massively impactful. So for me, between those two genres, even though they feel poles apart, there's a very clear through line. But I guess you could apply that almost to every single movie. But for those two partic- those two genres particularly, I think that, you know, ultimately, if we look at those movies as all those stories as cautionary tales and, and try to learn the lessons from what those, those storytellers are trying, trying to show us and hold that mirror up to ourselves from time to time, um, I think we'd, we'd probably take a move in a step in the right direction as a, as a society and maybe a species. For people who ignore the threat of AI. Uh, I think that I am familiar with the fact that you are going to ignore this particular problem until it swims up and bites you on the ass. The annoying thing is that All the President's Men is playing on the big screen here at the end of this month, and I'm going to miss it because it clashes with the, f- the Auckland Film Festival. And there's another film oh, on the man. same day. Yeah. I've never s- seen it on the big screen. Yeah. And 
it's one of those films that I, I, to be honest, you know what's interesting about the because obviously like the big sci-fi movies because there's normally you know or usually a bigger budget you know associated with those because of the special effects and the world building and the costumes everything's just kind of elevated therefore it lends itself to a cinema more i would love to have been in the cinema when things like spotlight and all yeah. the president's men were playing to a packed house and not even go there to watch the movie as an mem- audience member but to stand back and just watch the audience and just get a feeling for the emotions that audience is feeling at that time watching a very real story play out that's had devastating effects on not just the individuals involved in those stories but just just the you know the, the countries involved in the societies and stuff because they were massively impactful stories for hundreds and if not thousands or millions of people i mean it you know the, the watergate scandal changed the course of american history and therefore to a degree world history because yeah. america is seen as the leader in a lot of ways so yeah i mean it this is the thing i love about cinema you know it is a very communal experience particularly if you go to see a horror film or something everyone's jumping at the same time or a yeah. comedy and they're all laughing at the same part but it's also interesting to watch people and see what they don't laugh at and what they do jump at and all of those things. And you go, ah, I would have jumped at that bit, but you didn't. Why not? Did you see it coming? Have you experienced this before? Is it triggering something in you that you find deeply disturbing? What, what's going on there? And you just start to have a conversation about the film and what it brought out of you and what did it make you think about? Because um, I think that's really kind of the point of just all storytelling, isn't it? Rather than just cinema, you know, whether it's a book or a record or a podcast or whatever it is, it's, it's just trying to, it's trying to share something with you and get you thinking about something maybe in a slightly different way, which I, I love. I absolutely love it. And I'm, for me, that's why movies is my favorite medium, I think, because there's just so many aspects in telling that story. Yeah. You know? There's a thing that uh, Roger Ebert says around cinema being, uh, it's the only art form where you can have an out of body experience. And I, I really believe that. So, like, music can make you feel it a certain way, but, like, if, if a film mm. grabs you, and this does happen at home, but it really happens in the cinema because, obviously, mm. you're just confronted by a massive screen and the sound system. You, if the film does grab you in, in a certain way, you can absolutely leave your body and you're you're in that story, and that's, that's why I love it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, crazy. I tell you what, if you want an out-of-body experience, listen to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon with headphones on and the lights off and your eyes closed. Yeah. That is trippy. There's also, oh God, this is so bizarre. Also as well, um, someone on YouTube has paired up the yep. first eight minutes of The Wizard of Oz with Dark yep. Side. I, I watched it about it's a month mad. ago. Yeah. I think the only bit that, that really sinks, I, I mean, I, I've I've heard about this since, probably since I started reading, you know, rock magazines in in like the 90s. And I'd always mm-hmm. heard about it and I'd never tried it. And then I watched the YouTube version. And I think the only bit that sinks really well is the tornado with the uh, the great gig in the sky with the, the screaming mm. section. And that is like perfect. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not won by the, uh, I think someone was on the, uh, the, uh, the, the smokes when, when they figured this I out. I have no idea what you're talking about. No <laughs> idea what you're talking about, Johnny. <laughs> Uh, quick question on Jaws 2. So yes. I, I love Jaws. It's it's in my Mount Rushmore of films. I, if people say they don't like Jaws, I mean, I dislike them because I just don't understand why they wouldn't like it. But, you know, some Fair. people, some yeah. people, I, I, I think, say that they don't like Jaws to be con- contrarian. But mm. even though I find Jaws so faultless, I think I prefer Jaws 2. Like my friend Chris, that? my friend Krista, we're we're big Jaws fans, and I think we quote Jaws two 
more to each other. Uh, and I think it's like the, you know, because it's a sequel, people don't look at it too fondly. Oh, it's a cash in, blah, 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 blah. But I think mm-hmm. it's made with loads of love. You know, it's got John Williams. It's got most of the original cast. Uh, it is a little bit, I don't, I'm, I'm not too happy with, well, the, the teen stuff feels a little bit, uh, mm. contrived. Mm. That's the, probably the, the aspect of it. I, I don't like, but I love it. Mm. What do you think of Jaws 2? Well, I, I recently recorded a series of interviews for the 45th anniversary. It was the 45th anniversary of Jaws about three weeks ago. And I was really lucky because we got to speak to the director of Jaws 2, who doesn't really do interviews, but as a personal favor to someone that we know, he, he agreed to speak to us and it was so informative. We also spoke to the original director of Jaws 2, who got fired about a month into principal photography. John Han- he'd been Hancock. Working on for about a year. Yeah, John Hancock. And... Um, the thing that I love about movies is, I mean, no one sets out to make a bad movie deliberately. You know, sometimes things will go wrong and the movie doesn't quite come out as well as you'd hoped, but, you know, you, you will go into it with the, 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 the best of intentions. And now that I understand more about the making of the movie and the trouble they had making that film, it makes me appreciate it in a very, very, very different way. I mean, as a kid, I loved it in the fact that I got to see more shark, more blood, more guts, more gore, because that was the reason why I watched Jaws to start with, because it was all about the shark. Even though the shark's only on screen for four minutes in the first one, that's why I'm kind of there as a kid. I think the thing with Jaws 2 is that it's very easy to dismiss a sequel, because as you'll say, it's very easy to dismiss it as a cash-in or whatever. And it was was referred to, John Hancock called it a go movie, which basically means it's going to make money. We can make it as bad as we want, as long as it's got Jaws on the poster and more shark, generally speaking, we will make money on this. So the pressure in that way was off. However, in the same way that, you know, James Cameron made Aliens, he was trying to make his own alien movie and he was trying to expand things. The only difference, I think, is that with Jaws, and this is... is, uh, one, it's one of my controversial movie opinions, but I'll share it with you now. I actually watch Temple of Doom and Last Crusade more than Raiders. Okay. And I think the reason for that is the same reason that I think you might like Jaws 2 more than Jaws. Because Jaws and Raiders are both quite heavy movies in yep. the fact that they're, I think, they're the longest in the, in the franchises, I think, apart from Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And there's a lot of groundwork there that both of them lay yeah, not necessarily with a sequel in mind, but there's just a lot of setting up, a lot of character, a lot of story, and it's quite heavy going. But it's brilliantly balanced with character and action and, and everything else. But just for that easy watch, you know, Temple of Doom, Last Crusade for me, can't beat it. You you, you literally cannot beat it. You know, it's just such such great fun. Um, so that would be my theory. Although I think Jaws is, you know, it's it, for me, it's it's the perfect movie. There's the, I can't think of anything wrong with it, given the time it was made. You know, it was just such an ambitious film to make. But um, yeah, Jaws 2 for me, I mean, I think it was a really great missed opportunity mm. as well. Because when I spoke to John Hancock, he had a very different vision for the story. He and his wife, Dorothy Tristan, who sadly passed away, I think it was earlier this year, uh, they wrote the screenplay. And it was very dark, much grittier. Um, in tone, it was almost going to be like the Empire Strikes Back of the Jaws trilogy. It's going to be the dark chapter, and uh, Amity Island, where the Jaws story or the original Jaws story was set. You know, it's in economic decline. It's really struggling to recover from the shark incidences, and then all of a sudden, the last thing they need is another shark. 
Um, there wasn't really anything about the, the the teenage story too much in the way that it was in the final in the final movie, um, but for whatever reason, and then there's a lot of contention around this because we spoke to a lot of people about it. But for whatever reason, John Hancock got fired um, and had to move on. But I think it was a real missed opportunity because I think in terms of the longevity of the series, I think Jaws two, if John Hancock had been able to finish his version of it, this the franchise would have been in a much stronger position, um, and we probably wouldn't have got the Jaws three and. Four Jaws the Revenge that we yep. got because it would have been too much of a departure from the, the gritty dark direction. Yep. I reckon with the country that you've grown up in, which is the same country as me, you'll know this reference. So Jaws 2, I probably, I wouldn't have seen it in the cinema, but I would have watched it whenever ITV showed it. And the mm-hmm. thing that always used to make me I always used to jump out is the credits where they squished the the credits into into three four or four three whatever it is oh and they're all yeah and yeah they're, really they're bizarre all, yeah so like uh brody's pickup truck when he's driving to the gala and i think he go yeah. he might go on the ferry i'm not sure but it it looks so like thin and like tall it's like a clown yeah it looks like it looks like, it looks like he's driving a fridge yeah doesn't it like a blue yeah. fridge yeah i know exactly what you mean and it was really bizarre watching it now well now that i watched jaws 2 occasionally i had to watch jaws 2 a few times when um in preparation for the interviews and stuff that we've just done and i was watching it in a normal ratio that beginning part and i'm like that's that doesn't, not that doesn't look right now yeah does, doesn't look right. I prefer it with this squished up TV version. Yeah, I will. I will pick up the four, the new 4K version at some point, but I'm expecting that it'll just it'll just correct that. And I'll, that's not what I want. I want the ITV version. <laughs> it's not too late. I'll I'll get on the phone to Universal. Can we please just for Johnny, me and Johnny, can you please do the squished up version of the of the credits, please, please, just for us. I'm sure they'll do it. Do you have a favourite actor? Oh, God, now this question. Yeah, this one's kept me up at night. Um, it's a tough one to answer because of the medium that we're in. And I think you'll find that with every, with, with every sort of medium. But for me with actors, it you kind of subcategorize them into actors and movie stars, you yep. know, and, and with actors, with, with movie stars, they're the kind of people that will play comfortably to their strengths most of the time to guarantee that big box office stuff, which studios need in order to fund smaller projects, nurture new talent and all that. I get it. But then you've also got the actors who take on the really challenging parts, you know, in the deep dramatic stuff. So for me, there's there is a there is there's two things. I think, oh man, this is so difficult. I'm a big big Paul Newman fan. I think he's one of those movie stars that kind of became an actor later on in his career, and in a way, he kind of did it the other way around. Yeah. Um, he I've read I've read some of his books, and he took his craft very very seriously. And uh, a lot of his acting teachers would say if. Uh, he wasn't so good looking he would have been as revered as Marlon Brando because he was that talented even though he would always downplay it um, and you look at some of the projects that he chose particularly towards the end of his career when I mean like The Verdict for example is one of the all-time great screen performances it really is and it's really out of his comfort zone and, and uh, if anybody that's interested in acting watches um, the old actor studio interviews on YouTube yep. some of them are fantastic George Clooney talks about Paul Newman and he says Obviously, looks don't last forever. And George Clooney was in that category of acting, you know, the good-looking, handsome movie star guy. Paul Newman figured out very quickly that that wasn't going to last, so he needed to transition to different roles. And therefore, his roles got more challenging. But ironically, they were the kind of the roles that he would probably prefer to have played 
at the begin more the beginning of his career because they were more dramatic and and less about his looks and more about his skill. So I like Paul Newman not just in terms of his ability but also the choice of stuff that that, that he did. I think he was really smart about that. Um, but there was an actor that I really, really do like that I don't think necessarily gets a huge amount of recognition, and that's uh, Peter Mullen. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The stuff that he does, it's just incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, you, you don't need to be an expert on acting to, to to recognize good acting, you know. And Peter Mullen, for me, I mean, the first time I came across him was when he had that little supporting role in Train Spotting, mm-hmm. when he played the drug dealer, yep. and Ewan McGregor goes to his house, yep. shoots up, and then sinks into the carpet. That's that was Peter Mullen. And then every now and again, I'd see him crop up in stuff. And whenever he was in it, whenever it was a lead or a supporting part, I'd, I'd just be glued. To, I'd just be like, this guy's incredible. And then I started to watch a few other things. Uh, there was a Paddy, uh, a Paddy, I always Tyrannosaur. Paddy, yeah, Tyrannosaur yeah. with Olivia Coleman. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, it's it's almost like the station agent in terms of budget production, but it's all about character yeah. and story and writing, which are the three most important things. Um, you know, see so Tyrannosaur, he's incredible in Hector about a homeless guy just trying to get up to a, seen that. a homeless a particular homeless shelter um, to see his brother. I think it is. Uh, again, a 90-minute movie, but it's all about him and this journey and, and the people that he meets and the impacts they kind of all have on each other. And and it's just a, it's just a heartbreaking film, but it's brilliant and he, he's fantastic in it. And then you see him in something like Ozark when he's playing yep. Jacob, I think it is. And it's just like this this guy, he, he, he just does what he does so, so well. Um, and he's someone that I'd love to just sit down with and pick his brain about how does he go about analyzing that script and creating that character what are the choices that he makes and how does he arrive where he arrives or whatever i just, I just think he's really 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 good and then obviously you've got people like amy adams as well who's great she's one of my favorite sci-fi movies is arrival mm-hmm. i love denny villeneuve i love the story but i think it's her performance that holds it all together yep. I think, you know you can't fault what she does um yeah i probably say those three i think yeah i couldn't choose between them but yeah, nice. Paul Newman, Peter Mullen, probably my two favourites, I think. And I, I have spoke about this before, but Tyrannosaur is not a good film to watch on a date night. <laughs> uh, no, no, definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah, uh, it is not a, a romantic comedy and there's, there's no dinosaurs in it, no. just to let you know. <laughs> it is not, it's not a prequel to Jurassic Park or anything like that. It is a very, very, very tough watch. But if you like good, solid... Yeah, realism and story, character, you, 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 you're tough to beat it. I can't remember what it's called, but Paddy's second film, The Boxing One, that was good as well. Uh, let me, hang on a minute, I can't remember that, because I've seen Dead Man's Shoes, Yeah, that was brilliant, but I don't, did he write that and that write that one? I no, can't Shane Meadows. That was Shane Meadows, wasn't it? Let me but just have the, a quick look, sorry. Yeah, the listeners, the bo- I am Googleizing. <laughs> the Boxing Film is the boxing. second film that he directed, but he's in it as well. Uh, Journeyman? Journeyman, that's it. Yeah, Journeyman. Yeah, that's great. Journeyman. I haven't seen that. Is it good? Yeah, it's, it's not as good as Tyr, or it's not as hard hitting as Tyrannosaur, but it's uh, it definitely makes me want to see more films that he's directed. I mean, I love him as an actor, yeah. but uh, he's he's yeah he's, he's he's pretty handy as a director as well. Have you seen him in um, Death of Stalin? Mm, yes. Yeah, he's hilarious in that. Yeah, he's funny in that. Yeah, yeah. He's probably fantastic. one of my favourite British actors, and I'm quite happy that the the couple of occasions i've seen him in american stuff like he's in one of the bourne films as a guardian journalist and he gets yeah. like killed very quickly yeah. i'm quite happy that 
he doesn't sort of exist in the American, you know, I'm quite selfish and I want him to to stay hidden and, uh, you know, he's ours, you know, you guys can't have him. That's the thing. I think he, yeah, I think with, with filmmakers like that, I think they really understand the British mindset, particularly the Northern British mindset. And I think the thing that I love about Tyrannosaur and Dead Man's Shoes and everything else, it's like they are quite violent movies and quite intense movies, but there's a, a thread of tenderness that runs through both of those films and you, you're constantly conflicted by the actions that the main character takes, but you also understand it in the same breath. And it's very, very few people can really elicit that kind of conflict and you think, what would I do in that situation? Yeah, and that's that's kind of the point of again stories, you know, holding that mirror up and going, "What would you do? This is what this character's done, but yeah. what would you do?" Yeah, no, very, very, very talented guy. Nice. Hey guys, you're checking out Podzilla, a bi-weekly podcast where we dive into each and every Godzilla film and watch through them all chronologically. And not just every Godzilla film, but any film that might be Godzilla adjacent or tie into the franchise in some weird or wonderful way, no matter how much of a stretch it may be to get there. Listen to us discuss each kaiju flick and even join in on the discussion by following and watching along with us. Anyway, I think that's pretty much it. I'm Jasher Drake. And I'm Micah Drake. And you're listening to Podzilla. Uh, Ross Williams from the Daily Jaws. Do you have mm. a favourite director? Okay, so I've written down notes on this. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. I, I, I just, oh Jesus Christ. Okay, so hang on. Let me just. I've got, I've got twelve directors right. on this list. Reel them off. It's fine. It's really difficult. I love Fincher for the way that he does stuff. I think his style and uh, just. Yeah, I, I love the way that he tells a story. Zodiac, for example, and Seven, but Zodiac, Zodiac, I think is slightly better. Yeah. Kubrick, I love. I love Kubrick, but I think he's a little bit clinical in the way that he treats his subjects. It's like they're lab rats or something. There's yep. a, a very, it's almost quite distant. Like he's a, he's not directing, he's observing them, you know, and he's just waiting to see what this experiment kind of, where it lands. Alan J. Pakula, I really like. I think he's brilliant. And um, Akira Kurosawa, I've recently sort of really started to discover. I saw um, Seven Samurai at the BFI. I really liked him. Nice. Danny Villeneuve, Quentin Tarantino, Chaplin. The thing is, though, okay, all right, this is going to be the most unoriginal. I'm sure everyone has said this. But I think when you look at the number of movies they've made, the time span in which they've made them, the impact that those movies have had on other filmmakers... And my personal feelings and an impact that it's had on me, I've got to say Spielberg. Okay. I was I, wondering I whether you're going to say Hitchcock it, or Spielberg. It was one of the two. <laughs> Hitch, you know what? Hitchcock, I'm not a massive fan of. I mean, I, I can see how he's very, very influential, but I'm not a massive fan of his. I think I may have just been born a little bit too late to really appreciate yeah. what he's done. Again, sort of coming back to that point about Jaws and showing it to your kids before they get infected by other movies and stuff that are similar. Um, you know, I can appreciate Hitchcock, but I'm not a massive lover or fan of it. I I liked, I, I went through a massive Hitchcock phase probably in the early 90s when I started getting into movies. And I've recently mm. heard that the new 4K transfers that they're doing corrects a lot of the crap that was around back then. Like the, the, the copies that were available back then, like all the colors slightly off and some of the transitions are mm. like so juddery. So I'm I'm actually looking forward to revisiting them with the with the new yeah. you know new technology. 
but yeah, yeah, I love I love Hitchcock, but I understand the Spielberg thing. I think one of my previous guests said that no one really understands uh, like the combination between art and commerce for a for a filmmaker that that Spielberg does, and Hitchcock did as well. Yeah. But uh, Spielberg's obviously he's just nailed it, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, in, just in terms of storytelling, I mean, it, it, not just the personal relevance for him, but also just the artistry, you know, Schindler's List. Yeah. I mean, no one else could have made that film in the way that he did, and yet have so many people see it. I mean, how many movies and documentaries are there about the Holocaust? There's probably a lot. But when Spielberg makes his, everyone sits up and pays attention. Yeah. And it's the thing that I love about Schindler's List, as harrowing as it is, there's a lot of times when he doesn't show you stuff. You know, he'll he'll go like, and I can't remember. Someone else said this in an interview, but it's absolutely true. He was like, so I've shown this has happened. We know it's happened, but you don't need to see it. We're going to move on to something else. But this will stay with you, even though you haven't even seen it. And we're almost put in the point of view of people who are experiencing this. And again, that's one of the, the geniuses, I think, of a true art master of the art of filmmaking. You're not an audience member. You are you are in there in that experience with those characters which is why when jaws gets out onto the ocean i think you really do feel like you're the fourth member of that yep. crew at certain times nice. you, know? you go inside the cage cage goes in the water you go in the water sharks in the water our shark do you have a favorite soundtrack or score okay yes is the answer hmm? um it's an interesting thing with scores, particularly, because normally scores are remembered or revered because of maybe a main theme, and then yep. the rest of it might not be as great. Um, whereas soundtracks, obviously, are a little bit different because you can basically pick and choose the music that you, that you want. And I think the master of the soundtrack is Mr. Quentin Tarantino. I don't think anybody really uses music as effectively in his films. I think Baz Luhrmann is a close second, um, but I think Tarantino just pips it. So I think my favourite soundtrack of all time is probably and this 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 might be a bit of a controversial opinion but death proof ah uh, yeah i, I it, obviously you've got the iconic soundtracks that everybody bought which was pulp fiction and reservoir dogs when they first came out because it just introduces you to a whole different kind of music that i'd never heard before and the fact that it's tied into a movie gives it sort of that extra meaning which is brilliant but i think in terms of the suitability of the music, particularly the bar scenes and stuff like that in Death Proof. God, I'm going to watch that after this now. Um, <laughs> I just think it fits really, really well. And it just, it deepened my appreciation for, again, a different type of, of music. It was Tarantino being, I think, his most meta, almost geeky when it came to his soundtrack choices. And I, and I absolutely love it. But I guess that's part of the point of Death Proof because it was a B-movie, wasn't it? It was supposed to be a yep. B-movie. You know, it's part of that grindhouse double bill with, with Planet Terror. Um, and then I think... Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet from 96, I think. Those are those are two solid ones, but I'd say Death Proof pips it. In terms of score, I really struggled with this. I was initially going to say Interstellar. Ooh. And I went to see that at the cinema recently. I went to see that at the PCC, uh, the Prince Charles Cinema in London recently yep. on a 70 mil print. Beautiful to watch, beautiful to watch. Um, but the music had lost a little bit of its impact. There were moments when it was absolutely amazing, like the bit when uh, Cooper... Uh, played by Matthew McConaughey is trying to dock to the spinning uh, ship that they're trying and they're trying to match the spin and all that. It's just so exhilarating and it's just oh, you know, literally the, everyone in the cinema like just sighed a, a breathe a sigh of relief when that section was over. So the music there was brilliant and I think Hans Zimmer is a genius. Um, and then there's some other, particularly in sci-fi, when you get that juxtaposition of 
classical instruments, but in a very futuristic tone. So, for example, one of my all-time favourite, or almost like a guilty pleasure movie, is Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. Really like it. I don't think it's a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's a, I think it's a very, very good film for what it is. And the music by Michael Kamen, who, again, for me, is a very, very underrated um, composer, who's sadly no longer with us. Um, I think the use of music in terms of where they place it and, and the kind of music that they make for that was really good as well. Um, so I think it might be it might be one of those two, I yeah. think, at the moment in my mind. But I also really like the Batman score by Danny, Danny Elfman, the original. Mm-hmm. I can't choose. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. bad at this. I just feel like <laughs> I feel like if I don't choose one, I'm letting the other one kind of die. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, Sophie's Choice. It's just a nightmare. Speaking of Sophie's Choice... Uh and this will make sense in a second. I met Tarantino mm-hmm. about 10 years ago and Zoe Bell, his, his stunt, stunt woman, cause she's a Kiwi. Yeah. Yeah. And I went to an event where, uh, it was, a, it was the premiere here for the hateful eight. And I, I, at that point I had all of his soundtracks on, I still have, have all of his soundtracks on vinyl, but up until that point, seven or eight films, and Sophie's mm. Choice, I had to choose one of them to get signed by him. Even though I had... Which one did you go for? I had all of... Hang well, on, but, wait. But, let me see if I can guess. Hang on. Pulp Fiction? No. I Because it was the premiere for The Hateful Eight, I thought I would get him to sign The Hateful Eight. And I, uh, I, okay. I still love the fact that I, I got... So I've got his and Zoe's uh, uh, autograph on that. But even though he was only signing one which absolutely broke my heart. Uh, I got her to yeah. come back and she signed my death proof as well. So I've got my, my oh, death good proofs. girl. Yeah. Good girl. She's really good in that. Actually. Yeah. She's yeah. really good in death proof. Do you know um, what Quentin Tarantino thinks is the most perfect movie ever made? Go on. Jaws. Ah, brilliant. Yeah. He thinks it is. He says, and the things I think he's very clear to make the distinction between film and, and yeah. sort of movie yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of blockbuster. He says, yeah, Jaws is probably the, the most perfect movie ever made. He's a good lad, isn't he? He is. He's a good lad. He's a, he's a, he's a good lad. And uh, apparently he knows about the Daily Jaws because I... I oh, nice. I, I kind of know Greg Nicotero. He oh, does yeah. the special effects for... Well, he, he actually... Well, he was the showrunner for Walking Dead and all that. Yep. Uh, but he's worked with Tarantino multiple times and they talk about Jaws all the time. Um, and yeah, apparently QT knows about us, which is amazing. So QT, if you're listening, give Get, us a shout, mate. Yeah, I'd love yeah. Do you have a favourite cinema? Yes, I do. And it's a recent it's a recent one that's um just sort of appeared um on the radar. It was something that I unbelievably, the moron that I am, didn't even know it existed. And I've been walking past it for years. <laughs> and it's um the Picture House Central in London. Um I would normally go to the Prince Charles Cinema to watch an old classic, yeah. or I would go to the Odeon Lux or whatever it is. And suddenly, I think one day, I can't remember the movie, but me and my dad arranged to meet at this picture house central. And I'm like, this is weird. I've never been here before. And I walked in and I found it. And it's one, it's massive. Two, it looks like the old style cinemas, yeah. which are just gorgeous. Um, you know, it's sort of like straight out of, um, it looked, reminded me sort of a bit like the Overlook Hotel 
you know, oh, yeah, that, that yeah. kind of style kind of yeah. thing. And it's got a beautiful seating area where people can just crack open their laptops before they're watching their film, whatever it is. They've also got quite a nice vegan selection of food. I'm, I'm a non-meat eater, so for me that's oh, perfect. Yeah. And then you go upstairs, they've got the old-style popcorn stuff. They've got the screens as well are great. Uh, and I've also got one of my favourite memories uh, of watching a film, and this happened this year, actually. So um, every year on the 26th of April, it is... Yeah, yeah. LV426. Alien Day. Yeah. LV426, Alien Day. And um, I always try to watch Alien or Aliens at the cinema on that day because it's it's just part of my movie DNA, the Alien franchise. So I've always got to try and do it. Um, anyway, th- there's a a friend of mine that I've always wanted to watch Alien with for a very specific reason, which I'll, I'll tell you about. And uh, I messaged him the day before. So this is the 20th, 25th. And I say to him, hey, John, are you free to watch aliens tomorrow is playing in my local cinema he goes i'd love to but i'm watching it already at the uh picture house central in london i'm actually seeing alien and aliens double bill and i'm like oh damn it but my plus one has just dropped out would you like to come and i'm like (laughs) absolutely yes i am there with bells on (laughs) and whatever else you can imagine but this is the kicker the reason i've always wanted to watch alien specifically aliens with him is one that Alien is his favourite all-time film. And second, he works on Aliens. He's a prop maker. He's one of the best prop makers that's probably ever lived. He teaches prop making at the National Film and Television School. The man's an absolute genius. He built the Sulaco. Ah, yeah. He he built a lot of the... uh, he bought the uh, the drop ship, I think, that comes to pick them up and yeah. then crashes. The Sulaco is the uh, the big massive ship that looks like a gun yeah. that drops them off at the uh, yeah. just drops them off at the uh, yeah. at the planet just before they sort of get their asses kicked. Um, the best thing about it was, I mean, he loves Alien, so we sat there and watched that in silence, just admiring the masterwork. And then Aliens, he was like, "Yeah, we built that. That didn't work. That broke. I snapped that off by accident." Nice. And he was just talking me through all of the things that happened. I'm like, <laughs> This is the best alien day ever. So for me now, the Picture House Central has a real um, personal yep. tie and, and meaning. But I think even without that, it's probably still my favourite cinema because of, it's just got so many things for me there and I love it. And it's and I think the staff are really, they genuinely love movies as well. And that's yep. a big part of it yep. for me. Yeah. Do they only play retro stuff or is it new and retro? New and retro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah, they, they do all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes you see a lot more new stuff there than you would say. The the, the balance between the old and the new sometimes shifts quite a lot, but yeah. obviously they're, they're a business. They've got to run. Um, but it's great. I always keep an eye on their website or whatever. It's just to see if they've got any new stuff coming out because the setup as well is great too. Like, you know, they've got decent screen, decent sound system, comfy seats. Yeah. The view's great. And I think as well, because it's not one of the big multiplex cinemas, it attracts a certain um, cinema goer. Yeah. So you could go there. And you know that it's not going to be really noisy or disruptive. You, you yeah. know, you're all there to watch and appreciate this film. So even though it was Alien and Alien double, uh, Alien and Aliens double bill, when I saw it, I think the cinema was maybe a third full. Yeah. And everybody was just like, "Yeah, we're all here for the same reason." Yeah, yeah, and I'm yeah. like, "Awesome, I I can do this." Because one of my things I hate is just really noisy, disruptive people in cinemas. It's just yeah. Ugh. I go to a lot of retro screenings here in Auckland. I've for 2023. I'm up to about 70 something for just for retro film, not for new films. And that's the best thing about it is that people who are there to see it are there to see it. They're not to talk. So you don't get too many, uh, idiots. My, my biggest fear is like the multiplexes on a Friday and Saturday night and it's just full of kids. It's just, ugh. Yeah. That's why I try to see, if I can, I try to watch the new movies. So like when I go to see Dial of Destiny, I'll see it during a weekday, during a quiet showing. 
just so that I can actually just enjoy it. Um, although having said that, when Jaws was re-released, uh, I think it was towards the end of last year in 3D and IMAX, I did the double. Yeah. So I went to see it in IMAX at the BFI, which was great. And then I went to see it in 3D at my local cinema. And in the 3D version, there was quite a few families in there. And oh, I'm thinking, yeah. oh, don't, don't ruin it. <laughs> the kids loved it. Loved it. The kids absolutely loved it. And the parents were sitting there going, you could see them, like just when Ben Gardner's head is getting ready to pop out. They, the parents are sitting there getting ready to go, get ready to shit your parents, kids. <laughs> <laughs> and then literally everyone's screaming at the right time, laughing at the right time. Um, so again, I think a lot of it just depends on the movie. But again, that cinema was maybe a third full you know but again it's it's i think the people that you'll you go to see the, the movies with as well yep. play a big part in the experience as well yep you've sort of teased this but do you have a controversial movie opinion <laughs> right i wrote this down i'll tell you what i was thinking about this question i think i'm turning into a real grumpy bastard because i've got so many things that i think might be controversial movie opinions but okay oh man okay I'm going to narrow it down to three, but I'll go into detail on one. Do it, yeah. So I think um, Crusade and Temple are more watchable than Raiders. I don't think they're necessarily better because they're all very different, but if I had to pick a favourite out of the trilogy, it would be Crusade. Yep. Um, I think Ridley Scott is overrated. Yeah. But my real sort of geeky personal meta opinion is... Uh, at the beginning of Alien 3, when Newt and Hicks are dead in the uh, EV, the emergency yeah. evacuation vehicle, I think it's called, I think that's absolutely the right decision for the story and the character of Ripley. I don't know why people get so upset about it. <laughs> Matt, uh, you probably know Matt Hyten's probably a, a big big Alien 3 fan. He, uh, he mentioned... Uh, Alien 3 quite a lot. I uh, I quite like Alien 3. And I, I, I prefer the longer version, that director's cut that's come out since. I think it works much better. Uh, mm. I mean, I'm not angry that Newton Hicks die, but yeah, I don't know if it's the right decision. Why don't you think it's the right decision? It just seems cruel to let them survive aliens and then just kill them off with a swipe of the hand, you know, swipe mm -hmm. of the pen. Uh, yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I just went to see, don't know if you know of the film called A Map of the Human Heart by Vincent Ward. Yes, I, he was the guy that did Alien, or the, one of the original incarnations yeah, so of Alien the, So 3. the Wood Planet yeah. idea, he was working on it at that time, but I went to see this film because he's a Kiwi director and he did a Q&A at the end of that session and someone asked him about mm. Alien 3 and it was so nice to listen to him. It, he, you know, he only spent maybe three or four minutes talking about it and, and why he sort of got removed from the project. Mm. But that whole making of Alien 3 is so interesting. Like it's probably, probably the making of the film is probably more interesting than the film itself in terms of just the journey of, of what happened and... You know, uh, the whole thing's around, is it Jordan Cronenworth, the, the cinematographer who, who was like shaking and, and he got Parkinson's or he was suffering with Parkinson's, but uh, okay. it became so, so noticeable that Fincher had to like replace him during the shoot. And it was just like another headache for Fincher to, to, to right. deal with. It's not my favorite Alien film, but it's probably one of the most interesting in terms of like the production. 
I think I think again for me it's I think Aliens and Alien Three are more watchable than Alien. It's yeah. not it's not if I was to pick an Alien movie to watch, nine times out of ten I'm going to pick one of the other two. Probably Aliens of, of all of them. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. The production behind Alien Three was was a nightmare, and it was you know nearly the end of David Fincher before he even begun really. Um, so we're very, very lucky to have him. I mean, not to say that that would have totally and utterly ruined him, but, it, you know, looking at some of the history behind the making of that film, it's just just an absolute nightmare. But, um, yeah, I get a little bit of stick. Not that I've had the Alien 3 conversation and the Newton Hicks conversation that often, <laughs> so it's nice to be able to talk about it. But yeah. I just think what it does is it, it reframes Aliens because all of a sudden then it's a tragedy, yeah, yeah, which I think is ultimately more powerful. But again, you watch Aliens, and because it's so good, you forget about Alien 3 and what happens next, because it's so good, so engrossing. And then you watch Alien 3, and it really hits you, and you just think, oh my God, this, this, this Ripley character is going through so much, which is why when she... Spoilers, by the way. Um, <laughs> when she does what she does at the end, yeah. it's the ultimate piece, yeah. because you know she's got nothing really else to live for, because... If, I mean, ultimately Hicks and Newt would probably have had to die at some point in the yeah. story, right? Or they would have been left without Ripley or something would have happened. And I think the other thing as well is it really makes us feel more for Ripley because we're more likely to feel more for her if she's going through just further tragedy. It doesn't undermine aliens. I think in a way it, it strengthens it. And also it refocuses the story back on Ripley. I find her as a character far more interesting. The other issue that you've got as well is I think Newt. The casting of Newt, Carrie, Carrie Hen, I think her name is. That was such a lightning in the bottle casting between her and Sigourney Weaver. You'd have to recast the, the character, right? Because she would have grown up by then. She yeah. wouldn't be the same age. Yeah. So who would you get to cast? Who would you get to play her? And would the dynamic have been the same? Probably not. So I think, I think killing Newt and Hicks at the beginning of the story, I think it refocuses the, the plot on, on where it should be, which is on Ripley, because it's her trilogy now. Jim Cameron made that very clear in Aliens. Um, and also the fact that she fired the first one, you know, it's a logical place to carry the story. The, 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 you know, that's the central through thread. I think, not that those characters were disposable, because they're brilliantly played, but it, 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 again, everything in Ripley's life is finite. And that's one of the things that I think Jim Cameron's trying to tell us as well. Yeah. You know, things in life, are, some things in life are finite. Nothing goes on forever. Not even the Aliens extended special edition at three days, 43 minutes, or however long it is. Um, and just on your point about the extended version of Alien 3, I agree up to a point. I think the beginning of the theatrical cut is a little bit clearer in terms of the editing and, and the cut, but I actually quite like the fact that they use an ox rather than a dog. Mm. And I think that they li I like the fact that you see more of Clements at the beginning and all of these things. So I just, I, yeah, I, I agree maybe a two or three minute segment there that I'd maybe insert back from the theatrical section, a uh, theatrical cut. But then after that, yeah, let, let the rather section of it play i'd love to see david fincher actually just make damn film that he wanted to make yeah not that he ever would do but yeah. it's kind of like that john d hancock thing with jaws yeah. 2 i'd love to see that and i'd love to see fincher's version or vision of alien 3 yep i'm just happy they left it with alien 3 and didn't make any more films oh, of course yeah no that's absolutely <laughs> perfect yeah <laughs> what don't you like in terms of movies oh okay this is the old grumpy old man coming out um Two things I think really, really, really upset me and get and get get my back up. Uh, one of them we've actually just alluded to, which is the unnecessary sequel and or prequel or reboot, whatever you want to call it. And the other one is studio interference. I hate those two things. I really do. I think like every time you try to do a sequel 
or you try to do a prequel or whatever to a great movie that you know you're probably going to make money on, you're jeopardizing it. You're potentially weakening the original. And the interesting thing about the Jaws community is they don't really see Jaws associated with Jaws 2, 3D and The Revenge. They see it as mm. something separate. Yeah. And I think it's very difficult to do that when you've got something like Indiana Jones, for example, or the Alien trilogy, or, sorry, the Alien series. I mean, as I say, the first three Indiana Jones movies, they're just as close to adventure comedies or whatever you want to call them as, as you're ever likely to get. And it's all done practically again, you know, which is a big, big draw for those films. The stunts were done for real in a real environment. You know, that's Vic Armstrong jumping yeah. off of a horse onto a tank. That's nuts. That's nuts. You know, and that's just, that's the way they did it back in those days. I remember showing Jaws to a friend of mine a few years ago and she was like, so how much of that was green screen? And I'm like, they didn't have green screen. When do you think this was made? She couldn't, she couldn't believe it, you know. And then I went into some of the detail around the lengths they took yeah. to make this movie, and she was like, they'd never do that again. Um, so I think unnecessary sequels, is, you know, there is the cynical part of me that thinks, oh, it's just a cash-in. But then you look at things like Matrix, Re Matrix Resurrections. What was that all about? Like, seriously, what was that all about? What was the point yeah. in that film? In my opinion, again, it might be controversial, but I don't even think The Matrix needed a sequel. Yeah. But because yeah, it was just so successful... Oh, my Siri just popped up and said something. I don't know if you <laughs> no, just caught that you on the wrong. podcast, but Siri wants to join the conversation. Um, okay, let's start that again. Um, so yeah, so the Matrix, Matrix uh, Resurrections, I, I didn't really see the point in that. It didn't add anything to it at all. It felt like it was just a bit of a rehash, and then they yeah. tried some really convoluted theory about what yeah. the Matrix really was, and I'm just like, oh, God, it's totally pointless. I mean, again, it looked great, and it lends itself nicely to CGI, but that was about it. Um, yeah. And I don't think the first, so I don't think the first Matrix movie needed a sequel. I think the Matrix Reloaded was clearly just an attempt to try and extend the story so the studio could make more money, which again is the wrong way around. It's not about profits; it should be about story and character. And if there's a story to be told there, then absolutely tell it. But I think the way that the, the original Matrix ended. I think that was maybe the intention yeah. of the Wachowskis to start yeah. with. You know, that we're going to do one movie and that's it. So yeah, the unnecessary sequel, I, I really have a big problem with that. I, I, and I think it it's an opportunity for someone else with a new fresh idea to make a movie rather than just trying to retread yep. old ground, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then studio interference as well. Um, again, I'm, I'm coming from a place of sort of pretty deep knowledge about Jaws and from what we can tell the production of jaws wasn't really interfered with but steven spielberg had two very very protective producers making sure that he could just continue doing what he needed to do and they would keep the studio at a distance from him so that he could create his vision and look at what we got and i'm not talking about just jaws i'm talking about look at what look at the spielberg we ended up getting yeah you know this this guy that you know has arguably not just changed but also almost defined cinema for the last 30 years in terms of the projects he's taken on the way that he's done it and the people he's influenced you know we will be feeling his influence long after he's gone you know there are filmmakers that haven't even been born yet that will be influenced indirectly or directly by spielberg in, in some way so i think studio interference again like we said with alien 3 before and lots of other movies i mean there was um there's a really good documentary about blade runner dangerous days oh, yeah. which is the, the documentary about blade runner about the making of it it was a nightmare. They, you know, the studio didn't want the ambiguous ending around Blade yeah. Runner. It's like that's that's what kind of makes the movie, and it's kind of the point. You know, it asks the question. You know, what is it? What does it mean to be human? What's the difference between us and a replicant? You know, what is it that makes us human? And as a species, are we even fit for purpose? Because one day, as we've just discussed with AI, 
that's going to surpass us in certain ways. It already, it already kind of is. Um, and then, you know, Fincher also had a very close call after Alien 3 was 7. You know, the studio were going, no, you can't have that ending. And the story goes that Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman were going to walk away if the, if the ending was changed or taken out. Nice. Um, and that's all anyone really ever talks about now. You know, what's in the box? You know, it's like, have you seen Seven? No, we need to watch it because I need to see your face when you see the ending. And no matter who you watch it with, people are like, he's... What's it is is it is that really what's in the box? So Oh yeah, that's what's in the box. Yeah. Oh my god. And and that, just that, explains Fincher for the rest of his career. Because now you un, you accept yeah. and understand the type of films and the stories and the places he wants to take us as an audience, and it's just like this is incredible. But all that studio interference and and hassle that he got during Alien Three, I mean, I don't know if you've seen some of the documentaries, but some really, really good ones out there, um, that could have ended Fincher. That, you know, and and if the studio had got involved with Jaws, bearing in mind it went, some I think it was, it was supposed to be scheduled for some like 50, 50 days of principal shooting. They went on for one hundred and fifty nine. I think they treble, if not quadrupled, the, the original budget of Jaws. This details a little bit fuzzy, but it's around that number. And then the studio get involved. That potentially could have killed Spielberg's career, or we would have got a very different kind of Spielberg. So yeah, for me, the two things I hate: unnecessary sequels and studio interference. I hate it. Yeah, I think uh, most people would agree with you. Uh, it is just amazing that Fincher turned into such a fucking gem after having such yeah. a horrible time. I just saw yeah. Seven on the big screen earlier this year, and it's the first time I'd seen it since... Like, I used to watch it endlessly when it first came out. And for mm. some reason, I'd just not watched it for, for you know, 20 years. Uh, and it is such a good film. I mean, to come back from Alien 3 with that... And then Fight Club. It's just unbelievable. But then you look at Alien 3, it's like the ultimate baptism of fire mm. for someone like that. And the thing that everybody, I think the frustration with Fincher, for, sorry, for, French, for Fincher, and I don't know how many sort of movie interviews you listen to about people that have worked with Fincher before or just the directors in general, but they say he knows everybody's job better than they do. He just can't do them all at the same time. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he's just so knowledgeable about the whole filmmaking process. And he came from a history of making music videos and stuff. So he's probably sitting there going, okay, cool. I know your job better than you do. You're, you're possibly let you're, you're ruining possibly the perfect ending to this franchise that you've made. And that again would have created a different, maybe launch point for these prequels that have been made or yep. alien. We might not have got alien resurrection or whatever. Why does everything called resurrection? The fact that the matrix resurrection <laughs> and alien resurrection have both got the word resurrection in there. Stay yep. away from films with the word resurrection. Yeah. That's, that's my right. advice, particularly if it's the fourth in a trilogy, fourth, fourth in a series. Yeah. That's my advice. We're very close to the final, final question, but I just oh, want to take you back slightly to a couple of my favorite moments of the Daily Jaws. Mm. one of them i think now i might have heard about this before i saw it on the daily jaws but then i'm wondering whether i'd actually heard it through the daily jaws before i knew what the daily jaws was and that's the thing about okay. the serial killer victim being in the 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 uh july 4th scenes when when everyone's coming off oh the boat. with the lady in the dunes yeah yes. the lady in the dunes so for people who don't know uh there's a, a victim of a serial killer who uh, 
you know, I'm not too sure if the body was ever found or anything like that, but uh, she appears in as an extra, as a, you know, far away extra in one of the scenes where the, the ferries are coming in on the 4th of July and departing all the passengers. Mm. That is just crazy. Uh, but I, I think I've seen it a couple of times, because I know you, you repeat some of your content you know, every now and again, and I think I've I've read it there. And I wonder if I first heard about it through the Daily Jaws, but before I before I knew what the Daily Jaws was. That's great. It, it's very possible, but the sad truth is that it wasn't true. Ah, oh, don't tell me it that. Wasn't actually true. No, um, <laughs> it was. Yeah, we did a follow up story because the the body that was found was identified, and it definitely wasn't that woman that was in Jaws. Right. Okay. Um, I'll send you a link to the the follow up piece that we did. Yeah, because there was some kind of formal identification. This is a story I think that Dean wrote, so he would know the detail right. uh, around it. Um, but yeah, it wasn't actually true. But it was a a theory that I think the son Dean would know this. But it was the theory that the son of a famous actor or I think maybe rock star had. And then it kind of blew up. It kind of caught the attention of just a few publications. And then we caught wind of it. And we, we tried to do a little bit of diligence around it. Couldn't find very much. So we republished the information as we kind of saw it just yeah. to see if anyone else could sort of, anyone else from the Jaws community might know. Um, and again, nothing. And then some kind of formal identification happened and it turned out that it wasn't, wasn't her. her. Otherwise, yeah, what, a, what an amazing story. My other favourite thing from the Daily Jaws, and this is just a theory, but it's something that I'd never thought about uh, until you guys uh, shared it. And I don't know if it was your theory or if it was one of your viewers, followers' theories, is the Quint's arm theory around the fact that he, he lets go of the orca at the end because he can't uh, extend his arm because he, he drops that little line in earlier around, around arm wrestling. I just love that. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we, we've spoken to Carl Gottlieb, the screenwriter of Jaws, and I don't think that that's a deliberate thing. Um, it's but it, very, it makes so much, so much sense, doesn't it? It's the ultimate character. Yeah. Um, uh, what's the word? Character addition in terms of movement or, or physicality. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. if that is the case, then yeah, what what a inspired moment or, or inspired choice by Robert Shaw and Carl Gottlieb to try and work that into the script. It's just, it's just incredible. I mean, the more you watch Jaws... The more, the more you notice, and I mean, there's um, there's something in the. Have you read the book, the original, oh, by yeah, Peter Benchley? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's um, and it's not mentioned in the movie, um, but if you if you read the book, Mayor Vaughan is into some really shady re, re real estate deals yep. with the local mafia, the mob, yep. which is the reason why he has to keep the beaches open because he's counting on those summer dollars to be able to pay the mob bosses off who helped him get into office. If you watch Murray Hamilton's performance in Jaws through that lens, it completely changes yeah. his character for you. Um, and again, you can watch it any sort of numbers of ways, which is what I also love about movies is you can you can look at these things in different ways. And you know, Murray Hamilton's performance in that movie is, is incredible, particularly when you look at it through that lens. Um, and there's also, and I asked the director of Jaws to this when I interviewed him recently, um, there's a, a few deleted scenes from Jaws 2. And there's one where uh, Brody has brought the photograph of what he thinks is a shark to, you know, the select committee, maybe yep. five or six people there. They look at it and they're like, I don't see it. Is it seaweed or whatever? And then they think that Martin Brody, because he's just shot up a beach as well. He's like shooting at some bluefish in the ocean and stuff in front of everybody causing a public panic. Um, they all retire to the mayor's office and then it cuts 
it cuts and you see him pull up at his house and uh, Hendrix is there and he's been made chief because Chief Brody has been fired. Yep. The scene that's missing from that is you actually see what happens in the office while they're deciding what to do about Chief Brody. They all take a vote to decide should they fire him. Everybody votes to fire Brody except Mayor Vaughan. And for me, that is the ultimate redeeming moment of that character because it's like, I'm not convinced that he's right, but I've got to be loyal to my to my friend. He's not let us down before. So I'm going to vote to keep him in. And he was the only person that did. And I'm like, oh, what a moment. But it got edited out. And I, and when I spoke to the director, he said it was, might have been just down to time. Time, yeah. Because they also, particularly in the summer movies, they try and get them a certain length of time yeah. so they can do, instead of four performances in a day, they might do five, five which yeah. could be an extra 20% on top of their profits. So it's like, ah. So again, it comes back to that studio thing about profits before character story development legacy longevity and everything else final question ross williams mm. from the daily jaws what film is absolutely perfect in your eyes flipper <laughs> <laughs> um it, it i mean the thing is i i've seen a few movies that i think are pretty damn close to perfect but for me yeah it's, it's jaws um i was trying to think of a way to explain this in an interesting way because i've talked about this a lot um on sort of various things and I think for me, when it comes to when it comes to movies particularly, I think you can ask people for their top ten movies of all time, and I think why sometimes people struggle is because because I always struggle to talk about it. But I think there's actually two lists there. You've got the the, the ones with the deep personal meaning, or that just sort of connect with you on a, on a personal human level, and then you've got the other great movies that you just just think those are absolutely technically perfect movies absolutely perfect and it's very rare that you get a movie that kind of ticks both of those boxes heavily and for me it's jaws yeah jaws is the one that i think personally has a deep uh meaningful relevance i mean it literally has changed my life since starting the daily jaws um uh, but also as well you look at the craft behind it um you know the acting the editing the music direction so many things even though a lot went wrong on that film so many things went right and those things could only have gone right if the other things had gone wrong because it gave them the space and the time to focus on those things. Um, and it's a movie that I can watch and not necessarily spot something new in it every time I watch it, but I can enjoy it almost as a new movie each time because it's it's almost like, not that I've forgotten that I've seen it, but you just get so swept up in it. And there was something that R Richard Dreyfus, who played Matt Hooper in Jaws, he once said that, one, he didn't want to do it. He thought he was going to be a bitch to shoot. But he ended up doing it because he was so terrible in another in another film. He phoned Spielberg and begged for his part back, <laughs> and he and he got it. And the other thing he said that it was so good that he forgot he was in it. And I never really understood that until recently. It's like watching a movie that you've seen a dozen times before, as if you're watching it again for the first time. Um, I think again that's why Jaws. I think it's not just one of the greatest movies, well, probably the greatest movie ever made, but also one of the most rewatchable. For so many different reasons. Even if you don't spot something new in it, you still love the ride. Yeah. Lovely answer. And I think to add to that, one of the things I love about it so much is that it's so much of it is documented. The making of it is documented. Obviously yeah. with Kyle Gottlieb being on the set, you know, making changes to the, mm -hmm. the script, but then also his, his Jaws log that came out and it's, it's just yeah. such a perfect this is how we made the film book. Yeah, it is perfect. It, it, it really is. And and I think, yeah, the, the Jaws log 
is is a really powerful tool because it it really made people understand what it takes to make a movie because I think it, to a certain degree, apart from say things like I'm just trying to think of another movie that might have been sort of on par in terms of difficult to make. So you think of things like maybe Fitzcarraldo or Apocalypse Now or things like that. But no one, to your point, no one had really documented it in that way before. And I think it just it stopped people from just taking movies for granted purely as an entertainment. A huge amount of work has gone into that, particularly something like Jaws, where they're trying a new technology in a really difficult environment. And then you've got all of these other things at play that make it really difficult just to make that movie. Um, and it's all spearheaded by this 26-year-old wonder kid. He was directing episodes of Columbo a few years ago. It's crazy, nuts. isn't it? Yeah, it's it absolute nuts. nuts. And the what it's led to, you know, arguably the greatest cinematic director of all time in terms of being able to balance that artistry with, with blockbuster commercialism. You know, he's, yep. he's really nailed that. Perfect. I oh, agree. This has been fun. Yeah, thank this you. Been so much fun. It's not been as stressful as I thought it was going to be. Good, good. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. Like I say, I, I, your your work with the Daily Jaws just just it brings joy into my heart whenever I see a new thing. Oh, thank to, you. So I, I absolutely love it. Oh, and, uh, well, we we really do genuinely enjoy it uh, as good. well. I mean, again, it started off as just a way to show appreciation for a movie, and now eight years later, I can count people that made the movie as personal friends, um, and. You know, it's great to connect with fans. We probably get in excess of like 10, 20 messages from fans every day across the social media, all asking us questions or just giving us a little bit of a yep. pat on the back, a bit of encouragement, and it all helps. And, you know, we're, we're going to stick around for the long haul, I think. We're, the next big thing we're looking at is the 50th anniversary, which is only a couple of years away. Mm. Um, we've got a couple of ideas. Again, need to speak to Stevie, Stevie Spielberg. Yep. Uh, you know, see if he can just, you know, help <laughs> us out on a couple of bits. But, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, thank you, mate. And it's, it's much appreciated. And it's nice to speak to someone who is as passionate about movies as, as, as we are, because even though we are the daily jaws, you know, 90% of the time we, we love, we just love movies. You know, they're, they're, nice. they're, they're, you know, this is a massive part of my life. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you. You're absolutely welcome. Thank you so much. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies anyway but if you start to get a bit more sophisticated use that tool it's, right. it's a nice little guide nice. what we use. yeah cool keep that keep that in the podcast that's probably the highlight of the podcast talking about <laughs> seo analyzers that, that's that's the best bit by far most informative most useful <laughs> brilliant fantastic yeah. this evening we're joined by ross williams who's going to talk about <laughs> seo title optimizers hold on to your hats guys it's a hell of a ride <laughs> Some people will be thrilled by that sort of content, but uh, yeah, I, I might just save that for us as a, as a little deleted, uh, deleted. Yeah, maybe a little yeah. bonus. Brilliant. All right, thank you so much, nice Ross. One, Thanks. No, you're welcome, Cheers. mate. Have a good day, dude. You too. Oh, and uh, enjoy the rest of your birthday. I will do. Thank you. A massive thank you to my guest, Ross Williams. You can find the Daily Jaws on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads and on their website at thedailyjaws.com. Thanks also to James Van Ass, who wrote and performed the brilliant music, and to Willow Van Ass, who designed the amazing artwork and provided general podcast support. If you'd like to do me a massive favour, please drop me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will help other people find the show. You can contact MyMovieDNA on Twitter at MyMovieDNA or email MyMovieDNA at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs>